Hey, everybody. Welcome into the back room. I'm Andy Ostroy. Very excited for today's guest, Jonathan Carl. We're going to bring out Jonathan in just a second. But first, thank you for tuning in today. We appreciate you listening, and we'd love to hear your comments. So email us at backroomandy at gmail.com and or post on our social media. And we'll read some feedback next time. And if you like the podcast, please follow or subscribe, and you'll be notified every time we post a new episode. All right, Jonathan Carl. He is the chief Washington correspondent for ABC News and co-anchor of This Week and the author of the just-released New York Times best-selling book, Tired of Winning, Donald Trump and the End of the Grand Old Party. He has covered every major beat in Washington, D.C. and reported from the White House under four presidents and 14 press secretaries. He is a former president of the White House Correspondents Association and his prior books, Front Row at the Trump Show and Betrayal, the final act of the Trump Show, we're also instant New York Times bestsellers. Jonathan, welcome into the back room. Hey, it's great to be in the back room. Thanks for having me. So much to talk about. Crazy times, huh? <laughs> uh, we are cursed to live in interesting times. Interesting is a good word. There are a lot of other words I probably would use, too, to describe what we're experiencing. Uh, Trump and company keeping everybody busy, especially folks like you. You have a new book out. Congratulations on that. Uh, it is called Tired of Winning. Donald Trump and the End of the Grand Old Party, New York Times bestseller, critically acclaimed, jammed with lots of incredible detailed reporting and also fascinating, shocking, and at times chilling inside information. So I strongly recommend that people go out and get this book. And I want to talk to you about it in a bit, but I want to start off with just a little bit more macro stuff. Here we are, it's December 2023. In your wildest imagination, would you, could you have ever thought we would be here today dealing with the kind of stuff again with Donald Trump, again, so close again to him becoming president? I mean, I certainly wouldn't, uh, it, it would have been easy to predict that Donald Trump would be saying the kind of things that he is saying now and doing the kind of things he's doing now. But I think the thing that would have been preposterous is to go back, you know, three years uh, ago and to think that the guy uh, who lost uh, the 2020 election so thoroughly and in so many different ways um, and left the White House in disgrace um, would somehow manage to come back and be the front runner for the Republican nomination. It's somehow the Republican Party would once again, even after all we witnessed, um, in November, December, and January, November, December 2020, January 2021, would once again uh, embrace him as as a uh, as a as a possibly another uh, a second term as president. It, I think that would have been preposterous if you had proposed that to me. Um, you know, nearly three years ago, I would have I would have told you you were nuts. So, how then do you explain it? What is the reason for it? Well, I mean, th th this is why I wrote the book. I, um, I, I, I wanted to, to document, uh, first of all, the, the, the thoroughness of his loss and of his disgrace uh, as, he, as he left the White House. Um, and, I, you know, and I tracked this, uh, this, this comeback, which is truly a, 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 a remarkable comeback. And I think there are, there are a number of themes that, that, that emerge. Um, but, you know, one is 
that uh, I, I think memories to a degree have faded as to just how it was, how outlandishly um, aggressive he was in trying to overturn a presidential election. Um, uh, and I think that people don't realize that, in fact, you know, I've paid very little attention to what Donald Trump has been up to since. And if you look at this and you read, and I, I have a chapter in, in my book called Dark Days at Mar-a-Lago that really tracks through, and I talk to everybody around him. I mean, first of all, the sources for this book, and, and, and many of them are on the record, but, but almost all of them are people close to Trump, people that have a close vantage point of what he has done and what he is doing, mm -hmm. and including people that, that, that were with him in Mar-a-Lago um, when he left the White House. And, and, I, and, and I don't people, I don't think people really, you know, certainly some do, but I, when, when you see these national polls that show, you know, the overwhelming majority, I mean, massive majority of Republicans saying that they support him again, when you see head to head matchups uh, in a general election and show him, you know, ahead uh, in, in many of these polls, including in, in the key battleground states, I mean, these are not people that have been tracking the ins and outs of what Donald Trump has been up to. <laughs> You know, since he left, they've seen the coverage of all the legal cases. They probably largely tuned it out. And they're looking at a country and they're saying, I don't like Joe Biden. I don't like the direction of the country. Uh, what's the alternative? Well, it's that guy that was there before. Uh, so I want people, people can make that decision. That's fine. But if they do, I want them to truly understand what it was really like when he left the White House the way he did, because there's new information on that. And what it would be like based on what he has done since if he actually made it back into the White House. So on that note, tell me your best case and worst case scenarios if Trump gets back into the White House. The, the, the best case scenario is that all he really cares about is winning and, uh, and, and, and trying to, to tell the world that he never really lost and, 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 a, and a victory this time around would erase um uh 2020 in, in his mind this is I'm, I'm giving you his mind um and he goes in there and you know sure he's come in with all these promises of vengeance and retribution and using the power of the federal government to utterly annihilate his enemies and to go in a very radical direction uh but he gets in there and he's just as incompetent as he was um you know when when he, when he came in in 2017 and a lot of these plans end up going nowhere, that he gets consumed in his own little, you know, um, uh, obsessions. And it's just kind of chaos, but it's chaos that doesn't amount to much. That's the very best case. Uh, I think that's a bit of a fantasy to think that that's the way it would uh, uh, play out. But the worst case is he is in there, unlike the last time, he has no, um, he, he has no people around him who try to steer him away from his most self-destructive and nation-destructive tendencies. There's no John Kelly's. There's no Bill Barr's. There's no Jim Mattis's. Mm -hmm. um, even his daughter's not there uh, in, in, in a second Trump term. And Junior is. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, so I, 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 I think that I think the bottom line is that a, a second Trump term is actually far more dangerous than a first Trump term. I think that if you want to get a 
a vantage point on what it would look like. Look at January 6th, because I believe, and this is the case I make in the book, January 6th was the end point of the first Trump in uh, a term. If there is a second one, that is the beginning point. Is January 6th happened in large part because there was a purge of 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 those uh, who tried to rein him in, um, and he was hell bent on maintaining power and had a little bit more of an understanding of how power works, and that's where you begin a a, a second Trump term. So he's had a busy week. We saw the Supreme Court ruling in Colorado about the Fourteenth Amendment. We see the petition that Jack Smith made to the Supreme Court about absolute immunity. But what do you make of his opponents who are still equivocating, who are campaigning to become president of the United States and are handed on a silver platter the most incredible, incriminating details about their opponent and defending him, defending him? What do you make of that? Well, you have to kind of get yourself in the mindset of a Republican that, that wants to be president and, and, and has to run against Donald Trump to, to make it happen. Uh, they've seen all that's gone down. They've seen um, others in their party that have taken him on head on that have utterly failed. Um, they see Chris Christie out there as the lone uh, candidate, uh, unless you want to count Asa Hutchinson. But 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 Chris Christie as the as the lone candidate in the field uh, who is going to really take it to Trump and does day in and day out. And you know he's finding it almost impossible to gain any traction. He's some traction in New Hampshire, uh, but but you know certainly isn't running away with it in New Hampshire. Um, and they figure, look, I've got to. I've got to run against him, but I have to find some way to do it without alienating all of those people that are so fervently uh, supportive of him. So I interviewed Nikki Haley mm-hmm. uh, uh, just, just about a week ago in New Hampshire uh, with Chris Sununu. Sununu, by the way, a Republican who's not running for president, who has on occasion been been completely uh, unafraid to to take on Donald Trump in sometimes very harsh terms. Um but Nikki Haley, you know, is is like she she steps out there and she'll criticize him for being fiscally irresponsible, adding eight tri- eight trillion dollars to the debt. She'll criticize him for praising dictators, but you know she only goes so far. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought one, you know, she she has this line she uses. To, to, and this is her criticism of him. This is her taking him on. You know, the, the guy who calls her bird brain, by the way, and will just do scorched earth against everybody. But the way she takes him on and says, chaos follows him. Right. And we can't afford chaos. So I asked her, what do you mean chaos follows him? Does it doesn't follow him or does he create the chaos? I mean, what is this passive voice stuff? What, what does that mean? Um, and she said, rightly or wrongly, it follows him. Rightly or wrong. So... Again, she's like, she will go up to a point, but she's, I think she's thinking in her head, if I do what Chris Christie does, it's not going to work for me any more than it's working for Chris Christie. But it's interesting what you're saying, because none of them want to offend the base. They need the base, blah, 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 the base, the base, the base. But here's the thing that I don't understand. They are all trailing him by 30, 40, 50 points. 
the Republican Party has lost every single election, special election, with the exception of the House, which was supposed to be won by 40 to 60 seats and instead was won by about four. They are losing everything while they're kissing his ass and equivocating. So what do they have to lose by changing strategy? Well, I mean, I make the case in the book that they have everything to lose if they don't change strategy, because I I don't think it will work mm-hmm. ultimately to, uh, you know, this kind of, we have to placate him and hope he kind of either self-destructs or disappears. It just doesn't work. And, and if he runs away with the nomination, which looks like he's doing, I still think there's a chance he loses, but it's every day it's a little harder to make that. Well, I wanted to ask you about that because I know you have said that you're not so sure it, it's locked up. And I happen to agree with you. I happen to yes. think that not only in politics is a year uh, or at this point, 10 months, a lifetime, but given what he's going to be dealing with, it certainly is going to be a lifetime. So anyone who thinks it's automatic that he's getting that nomination, I think isn't yeah. really looking at the full potential of what lies ahead. Yes, yes. Um, and also, again, this is from spending the, the last year really kind of taking a deep dive into the mind of Donald Trump and the people around Donald Trump and really understanding where his head is at now. I think that he is far more volatile uh, than, than, than even it appears in public and uh, far more capable of being utterly self-destructive um, than, uh, than, than, than people realize. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, there's a lot of unpredictable factors out there. There's a lot of time. There's you know four weeks before Iowa, five weeks before New Hampshire. Uh, we have seen we've seen big changes and big uh, upsets in the past on on in, in elections that were far less fraught than this one. And so I, I I still think that he is capable of 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 losing this. But you know, it would take it's it's you know it's it's. As great as gift is, is frankly, is the field that's running against him. I mean, we we, we forget, and I'll 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 tell you, I'll, I'll specifically cite it for you. But uh, you know, Ron DeSantis, uh, there was a there are several polls you can look at, but I'll give you one specifically because we're right about the same time. Ron DeSantis, middle of December of last year, Wall Street Journal poll had a a, a nearly twenty point lead over Trump as in, in a hypothetical matchup. DeSantis had not announced he was running yet. But, um, you know, that's, uh, uh, I, I think he's been blessed by the fact that DeSantis turned out to be such a ineffective campaigner, ran such a, such a, such a flawed campaign and tried to be kind of like a Trump clone, but without the, I don't know, what do we say? I mean, without the, the spark, mm-hmm. <laughs> without, the, without the, the charisma, without the, the, the charm, I, I don't know, whatever you want to say. Human, human-like qualities. <laughs> you said it, not me, but uh, some, some would say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the book again. It's called "Tired of Winning: Donald Trump and the End of the Grand Old Party." Prior to that, you wrote a book called "Betrayal: The Final Act of the Trump Show." But we're, I think we're going to break a little news here today, right? Because <laughs> there was another show, yeah. wasn't there? There was another yeah. Trump show after that one. Um, yeah. So uh, it's funny. I had Miles Taylor on recently, and his book is called Blowback, A Warning to Save Democracy sure. from the Next Trump. So I wanted to ask you just in general, when you're writing a book, 
especially in politics, especially about Trump. When you sit down to write it, like, do you have any sense that it stays as relevant as you had hoped it would be? Because it changes all the time with him. Yeah. Uh, look, there, there, there are many challenges. I've done three uh, books now. And I think that, and I, I started out by intending to write one and then intending to write two <laughs> and then intending to write three. I, it was never a plan that this would uh, be, a, be a trilogy. But I think that the three books are actually very much in dialogue with each other and I think are, I hope, something that will be useful um, for people 20, 50, 100 years from mm -hmm. now who want to answer the question, what the hell was that all about? What happened? <laughs> what was it like? But look, very, very quickly, front row at the Trump show, I simply wanted to write a book that would get that would convey the experience of being a reporter who knew Donald Trump very well in a very different context, uh, suddenly finding himself at the White House covering the Trump presidency as the, by the way, the president of the White House Correspondents Association. Mm -hmm. And, you know, covering it was just such a crazy experience. I wanted people to understand, I wanted future reporters to understand this, future citizens to understand mm -hmm. this. What was it really like? Um and the second book, Betrayal, I wrote, um, you know, after January 6th. And my, my, my whole point is I want to document the history of this. This is for the historic record. While memories are fresh, I went out and I talked to everybody around Trump, everybody in that administration, the people that supported him, people that opposed him ultimately, and get their, get their recollections, try to get the documents they had. And write, this is what really went down, because I knew there would be an effort uh, to at revisionist history. And I wanted, it wasn't so much, um, it wasn't future looking, it was this is what happened. And what an outrage this was, what a betrayal of our country. Mm -hmm. And then, can I come to the third one? This is more of a warning um, of what it would be like if it, if it were to happen again. So I think in each of these, you know, yes. Trump's going to make crazy news all the time, but I think each of them actually, um, and we'll see with the, the third one, I, I'm confident as well, but certainly the first two have very much stood the test of time. And I think that if you were to read today, you would have insight about where Trump is now, even though all the intervening news events have happened. This gives you a sense of what, you know, of what happened mm -hmm. and hopefully a little bit of, a, of, of an answer as to why. Well, you, uh, you talk about a former high-level Trump aide, and yeah. you mention what he told you. And it's really kind of shocking what this individual said. He says, quote, about Trump, he lacks any shred of human decency, humility, or caring. He is a traitor and a malignancy in our nation and represents a clear and present danger to our democracy and rule of law. That's chilling. It, it is, and and the and the context is is especially important, um, as I describe in the book. This is uh, somebody who served at a very high level in the Trump West Wing. Okay, so with all due respect to Miles Taylor, who you know uh, wrote very compelling and obviously um, ultimately proved to be Mister Anonymous uh, in that incredible op-ed that he wrote in the New York Times. Um, Miles Taylor worked at the Department of Homeland Security in, in a very senior and important position. This is somebody who, unlike Miles, this is somebody who saw Trump every day. 
um, and worked right there, you know, steps away from him um, and and was given a position of responsibility uh, by Trump and perform that duty. I, I don't say when in the administration it was, because I, I, you know, you gotta, I don't want to out this person, but it's for more than a year. And that was not simply a quote given to me, uh, you know, off the cuff. This was, this person became so horrified by what Trump had done, specifically in this case, and it was like the last straw when this, when he saw the details of, of uh, in, in the Jack Smith indictment on the on the documents case and saw the, the documents that he had pilfered uh, from the White House and the way he had defied justice, obstructed justice, defied a subpoena and did so much to um, to to fail to comply with the law. He went down, opened up his computer, opened up his laptop and wrote that note to himself. And I spoke to this person shortly after that, and he mentioned that he had done this. And I said, "Hey, can you please share that note for me? Note to me." And he's and he said, "Look, I can't, I can't go public on this. I've this person's basically left politics. Um, um, very concerned about the threats of retribution and whatever. This person is not one of those that's been out there criticizing Trump. Certainly hasn't been out there defending Trump either." Um, but says, look, I've got family. I worry about my father over here. I worry, and, and I, I, I can't. I say, okay, I'll, I'll keep it anonymous. Mm. Uh, but please, let me, you know, share it with me, and let me, and let me print it. And he, and he did. Mm. And it, it is an extraordinary, uh, uh, is an extraordinary statement on on a president of the United States from an individual who served him at a very high level and cannot be dismissed as a political opponent or, a, or a, a Democrat or a rhino or whatever. This is, this is somebody who, who served him and saw what it was like. You start the book by referencing Waco when Trump was there, the anniversary week, I guess, of, of the uh, Branch Davidian catastrophe. Why was that your launch point for the book? Well, um, because first of all, it was his very first campaign rally of the 2024 campaign. And it was in Waco, Texas, which of course is where the Branch Davidians had their standoff with federal agents in 1993. And that standoff, um, which you and I are old enough to remember, perhaps others listening are, are not, uh, was was a, was a was a horrific tragedy in the end. Eighty-one people dying in an inferno as the federal agents went in. You know, some of the Davidians uh, uh, apparently sabotaged and you know and 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 set a, a suicidal uh, fire that, that that killed them all. Um, and it became the rallying cry for. I mean, a lot of people said this was a terrible miscarriage of justice that the FBI, that the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, the federal marshals, they mishandled this. I mean, it certainly wasn't a success. Everybody was dead. Um, even if that ultimately it was the Branch Davidians who set the fire themselves, this was not a successful thing. But it became a symbol for the right wing, uh, many, in, many on the far right, uh, of a government that was out to just out to kill its own citizens that was out to take away rights and out to to you know do horrific things treat me the way they treated the branch davidians 
So it, it, it triggered this movement. It was a militia movement in the country. And ultimately, two years later, one of the people that was inspired by this was Timothy McVeigh, who drove a truck full of explosives to a federal building in Oklahoma City, the Murrah Federal Building, and killed 168 people in a in, in, in the greatest, deadliest attack of domestic terrorism in American history. So why is Donald Trump going to Waco, which was a place that obsessed Timothy McVeigh and so many other right-wing militias, um, to launch his campaign? And, and, and why, at that campaign, is he literally starting it by showing on the big video screens images of the Capitol being attacked on January 6th. And as I, you know, pulled out, uh, I talked to, um, to to Steve Bannon, who was one of Trump's, you know, most important advisors for a long time, and especially now. Mm -hmm. uh, we are the Trump Davidians. He wanted to say the federal government is again out of control, they're again out to get you. That's why they're coming after me. And we need to uh, take action. So it's a very dark, it was a very dark place to start the campaign. It's a very, it, it, I mean, it's, it's, it is absolutely chilling. Uh, uh, and, and read the words and read, read the words of what he said in that speech or listen to it. And now he's gone even further. You ask how things changed. He didn't mention vermin in that mm -hmm. speech. He didn't mention poisoning the blood of our country in that speech. He wasn't invoking or paraphrasing Adolf Hitler in that speech, but he was he was headed exactly in that direction. And that's that was the rally that set the tone for what this campaign is and will be and what a second Trump presidency would be like. I was going to say you wrote a piece this week on Trump and the Hitler references and how he's parodying the rhetoric. The whole Hitler-Trump thing is infuriating to me because you can Google a piece that I wrote. I used to write, uh, contribute to Huffington Post. They'd put my stuff on the front page all the time. In 2015, I wrote a piece called Trump and Hitler, and they refused to print it. 2015. So you, you were ahead. You were ahead. 2015. But, you know, you, you've expanded on that in your piece and the comparisons. And it's just like he doesn't seem to care. He's doubling and tripling down because he knows exactly what he's saying. And Trump, of course, being a pathological liar, my theory is when he says he didn't do something like read Mein Kampf, of course, that means he actually did read Mein Kampf. And, and, and look, he, um, he's not Adolf Hitler, and that's not what you were saying or I was saying in doing this, but he's had this obsession with Hitler. Uh, you wrote that piece in 2015. You know, there's the, uh, the, the, the Vanity Fair piece from 1990 uh, that goes into this stuff. This is a decades-long obsession. And he has an obsession with dictators of all kinds, um, the strong man, and clearly wants to see himself in that light. That's why the anecdote that I have in my book about how, you know, Angela Merkel, he says he's telling this Republican congressman, you know, Angela Merkel, who despised Trump and had nothing but contempt for him, and everybody knew that, but Trump wanted it, this this congressman, really, actually, she thinks I'm great, um, and said, you know, you get. Angela Merkel told me, you get such huge crowds. I don't know how you do that. I mean, there's only one person, one political person in history that ever did that. This is the Chancellor of Germany clearly saying, yeah, crowds. Gee, who's she referring to? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, sure. So in the book, there are so many other chilling references. But the one thing that stood out for me 
that to me crystallizes everything is everything regarding Johnny McEntee. Because to me, that demonstrates the chaos, the insanity of this guy who used to carry Trump's bags, and now all of a sudden he's in the middle of incredible decisions. So McEntee's thing is he's the absolute true loyalist in every sense of the world. He's a he's an affable, outgoing, former college uh, football quarterback kind of guy. Not a lot of depth, not, you know, not big into the ideology or anything, but he's like, I'm Trump. I'm with Trump, all things. And what McEntee, uh, his, his, his secret with Trump is he said, you've got people around him, around you that don't really serve you. Um, and they don't believe in everything you say. This is like the Miles Taylors, you know, I mean, when Miles Taylor, you know, comes out and, um, writes anonymous, you know, guys like McIntyre, like, well, that we have to find those people, mm-hmm. the resistance inside the Trump white house, inside the Trump administration and get rid of them. So McIntyre, finally gets the job as the head of the personnel department, PPO, Presidential Personnel Office, um, in February of 2020. Fires everybody in there, brings in a bunch of his friends, most people in their 20s with no experience hiring or firing anybody. But they set out over the course of 2020 to find and track the people that are not sufficiently loyal to Trump. It takes time. He doesn't really get up to speed until the election when he fires the top leadership at the Pentagon. But my point is McEntee, and if it's not McEntee, it'll be McEntee's clone, you know? And, and he is still in touch with Trump, but he's working on the so-called Project 2020, but it doesn't even need to be McEntee, but it's somebody like that. They are going to realize that if there's a second Trump presidency, let's make sure those people don't get in the door. We don't want any more Bill Barrs who are going to tell us you can't do that because it's against the law. We don't want any Pat Cipollonis, these White House lawyers that are trying to stop us from doing stuff. We don't want any Mark Espers who are going to say we, we don't want to bring active duty U.S. troops on the streets of American cities. We don't want any John Kellys uh, who are trying to bring some discipline to the, uh, to, 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 to the White House and, again, try to keep the president from doing things like in, waging war on Venezuela, which, by the way, is another story. Mm-hmm. But... We want those people gone. We want people that when Trump gives an order, say, yes, sir. Mm-hmm. And he was also in the middle of trying to make decisions at the Pentagon, right? I mean, it was unbelievable. I mean, I, you have to- He's a guy who carried bags. Yeah, I, I, I mean, you, 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 you've read it, and I hope people listening will t- take a look at this. The, the, the description of what happened when McEntee engineers the firing of the defense secretary and three other top officials there, and then says he wants to- actually tries to put together an executive order, which he himself drafts, 30-year-old John McEntee, to have what would have been one of the biggest movements of U.S. troops in the shortest period of time since the Iraq invasion or maybe Vietnam, okay? Uh, Withdrawal of all U.S. forces out of Germany, out of Afghanistan, out of the Middle East, out of Africa, and done on an immediate timeline. And this is a guy who never served in the military, doesn't know, you know, I mean, these things, there are diplomatic implications. There are like carried bags. <laughs> yeah, he's the guy that carried the bags. Yes. It didn't work, by the way. It didn't work. There was like a, and it's, it's a very dramatic, you know, surprise, surprise. It didn't, it didn't work. But, uh, you know, next time around, I mean, who knows? Hmm. So lastly, we here in the back room, we always try to work Taylor Swift into every episode. Uh, who doesn't? Yeah, yeah. 
and there's a Johnny McEntee Taylor Swift story, isn't there? <laughs> it's one of my favorite stories of it all. You just can't believe it. Uh, McEntee's team found out as they were trying to do the make sure there were no disloyalists. They found out that there was a woman working in housing and urban development. Young woman worked for Ben Carson, the secretary. And um, they found out that she had liked a Taylor Swift post on Instagram. You know, you go hit the heart. You know, you know you're, 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 you're tech savvy. You understand this. So they, she, they, this woman had liked a Taylor Swift. And, you know, Taylor Swift is anti-Trump, by the way. But worse than that, I mean, that was just the beginning of the transgression. The photograph of Taylor Swift, there were several, but one of the photos showed Taylor Swift holding a tray of cookies. And the cookies had on them the logo of the Biden-Harris campaign. Can you I imagine? Sure can. And um, so this went to Mark Meadows, the chief of staff, who then summoned um, uh, the chief of staff at the Housing and Development to say, we have an issue here. Uh, we can't have our people liking the social media posts of of Biden supporters. I mean, can you imagine? This went to the chief of staff of the White House. And by the way, I did some reporting on this, and you'll appreciate this because you know I do a lot of investigative reporting, and I want to get to the get to the bottom of it. I found out this woman actually, it turns out, is a Taylor Swift mm. fan. That apparently is why she liked the post, and apparently. I hear there are a lot of these people out there that like Taylor Swift. There's quite a few. And that her social media posts tend to get a lot of likes. Yeah, Travis Kelsey likes her too. McAtee ought to watch. <laughs> that's what I've heard. Yes, that's what I've he heard. He ought to watch yes. himself. Uh, <laughs> don't, don't let Johnny McAtee know. <laughs> Jonathan, congrats again on the book. I wish you further success with it. This was a great conversation. I do hope you'll come back. Excellent. I will. Thank you very much. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. This episode of The Back Room was edited and produced by me, Andy Ostroy. It was co-edited and co-produced by Maddie Rosenberg and co-produced by Jen Hamoud. Our theme song was composed by Andrew Hollander and our logo was designed by Cricket Langell. And special thanks to Patricia Wind. Please take a moment to rate and review the podcast and also follow or subscribe. Until next time, keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards and have a great week. 